0: Happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm wearing these colors, uh, I mean, for the day, but also Ocrest colors are green and white every day. So um, every day is St. Patrick's Day here. Um, No, my name is Mary Ortiz, I'm the head of school, um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the fourth annual O'Donovan Humanities Lecture. Uh, Before inviting Lisa Kenna, up here to introduce our speaker, I want to give you some background on the inspiration behind the evening. Uh, We seek two ends with this annual lecture. The first is to honor great teachers, and the second is to uphold the importance of the humanities. Uh, Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, addressed young professors from universities in Spain during World Youth Day in Madrid in 2011, and he said, Young people need authentic teachers. Persons open to the fullness of truth in various branches of knowledge. Persons who listen to and experience in their own hearts the interdisciplinary dialogue. Persons who above all are convinced of our human capacity to advance along the path of truth. The lofty aspiration to seek truth is the most precious gift you can give to your students personally and by example and he went on never lose that enthusiasm and concern for truth always remember that teaching is not just about communicating content but about forming young people you need to understand and love them to awaken their innate thirst for truth and their yearning for transcendence be for them a source of encouragement and strength I love this encouraging call, and I see it as bringing the two goals of the lecture together very beautifully. Both this kind of teacher and the humanities well-taught form a person to embrace the full measure of what it means to be human. And that's also quoting Pope Benedict. Pat O'Donovan is the inspiration behind the evening, evening because she spent many years bringing these lofty aspirations to life. She joined us from Boston, where she lives, for the first O'Donovan lecture back in 2014. I told her when I picked her up at the airport for that occasion that a few people, a bit shyly, had asked if the lecture was a memorial lecture, and she loved that. If you know Pat, she got a great kick out of that and said, more or less, I'm 80 years old, but I'm alive and kicking. Um, She joined us again for the groundbreaking of the new campus but um, she signed off of traveling adventures so we don't have her here tonight although i'm sure she would have loved the fact that the o'donovan lecture falls on saint patrick's day this year she was the first headmistress of Oakcrest from the day the school opened with 22 students in 1976. she served in that role for two brief years very happily she was eager to be back in the classroom full-time because she was first and foremost a teacher. Pat was gifted with the ability to convey to students what another great teacher of the humanities called the sheer expansive joy of learning. She was a consummate professional, maintained very high standards for herself and her students. I hate to think of her, I hate to say this in the past tense, she had and has a wonderful sense of humor, an infectious laugh, and a youthful readiness to be surprised by beauty, knowledge, and truth. With Pat, there is always something new to learn, to share with others, to be delighted by and instructed with." She is, was and is, again, I'm going back and forth, she's still alive and kicking, but she um, was a l- great lover of, let's say, of the language arts, of English and foreign languages Every English class included a lot of history. Every history class addressed the English language expression through speaking and writing. She incorporated theater and art history into her classes whenever possible. There are many Miss O.D. stories which were shared by alumni at an open mic after the first O'Donovan lecture. The way she always asked students to never forget the BP, she would always say, you've gotta have the big picture. Um, the way she would assign roles uh, from The Merchant of Venice to her 8th grade class and take them back one by one. So she was doing a one-woman show. Probably, great. Everybody was grateful for that if you've heard 8th graders try to read The Merchants <laughs> of Venice. Um, just delightful. I think of her coming up to me with a book in hand, chuckling and saying, listen to this. You've got to hear this. She retired in 2002, but continued designing and teaching summer programs as continuing education courses in English, history, and current events. Always learning, always teaching. She's nurtured friendships with students from her many years as a teacher and wise mentor. She's always been a source of encouragement and strength for former students, now friends. Even more, for all who are fortunate to know her, she's a shining example of the perennial youth of one who loves God above everything. It's my pleasure to ask Lisa Kenna to come up and introduce our speaker tonight. Lisa is the master teacher of the English department here at Ocrest. She's brought her love of learning to Ocrest and so many wonderful treasures to our students um, in the seven years that she has been here, uh, not the least of of whom is our speaker tonight. So I'm going to ask Lisa to come up and introduce our speaker.
1: Evening, welcome to Ocrest. What a great blessing to have Dr. Glenn Arbery at Oakcrest this evening on the Feast of Saint Patrick's Day. I am Irish. <laughs> 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 um, however, his visit really began yesterday when we were privileged to have him as the leader of a deeply engaging Oakcrest faculty and staff discussion. Thank you. Um, Connecting Alexis de Tocqueville's understanding of democratic envy and democracy in America and Flannery O'Connor's short story, Greenleaf. In our lively seminar, we wrestled with O'Connor and her vivid imagery with its layers of meaning. As Dr. Glenn's student for many years at Thomas More College, University of Dallas, and the Dallas Institute Teachers Academy, our discussion reminded me once again what it means to be a student of Dr. Glenn Arbery. Dr. Glenn Arbery is not only a beloved mentor, poet, author, and literary scholar, he is also a loving husband, a dedicated father of eight children, seven girls, making Dr. Glenn feel very at home while at Oak (laughs) and a doting grandparent of 16 and more coming along. He is an accomplished writer, where he has published and lectured on some of the greatest authors, including Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, Faulkner, O'Connor, and Dostoevsky. In 2015, he published his first novel, Bearings and Distances. Recently, this was just a few weeks ago, Joseph Pierce reviewed the novel in an article entitled A Fictional Path to Understanding the Mystery of Suffering. And notes the influence of Flannery O'Connor and Sophocles, saying the novel is or the saying the novel succeeds sublimely. He is also the author of Why Literature Matters, and the editor of The Tragic Abyss and The Southern Critics. Professor Glenn Arbery has taught literature at the University of Saint Thomas in Houston, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts, the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture, and the University of Dallas. He was the DL Zone Professor of Liberal Education at Assumption College until 2013, when he and his wife, Dr. Virginia Arbery, accepted positions at Wyoming Catholic College, where he now serves as President and Associate Professor of Humanities. O'Crest O'Donovan Humanities Lecture Series, as Mary commented on, was created in honor of teachers and the liberal arts. So it is quite fitting for us to honor Dr. Glenn Arbery today. He has dedicated his life to teaching the liberal arts for nearly 40 years, during which time he was also the director of the Teachers Academy at the Dallas Institute where he spent teaching teachers. As a southerner from Georgia, Dr. Glenn has a special admiration for a a fellow southern and Georgian writer, Flannery O'Connor. In his insightful book, Why Literature Matters, Dr. Glenn defends the irreplaceable role of literature and discusses O'Connor's vision of writing as one that helps us to understand and approach all literature. O'Connor warns of a superficial reading in which readers are tempted to reduce literature to a mere theme or abstraction. According to O'Connor, the anagogical reading, that is, the ability to see different levels of reality in one image or situation within a story, should help us to break our own delusions in order to see reality. While in our Teachers Academy style seminar discussing the final lines of Greenleaf yesterday, where Mrs. May is pierced in the heart, I was reminded of my many years studying with Dr. Glenn and the transformative power of reading great literature with a great teacher. I especially remember the writing and presenting of my senior thesis at Thomas More on suffering as ecstasy, in which I tried to capture O'Connor's vision of how violent grace pierces the soul. The images of Raskolnikov kissing the earth and Bernini's sculpture of St. Teresa in ecstasy when the angel pierces her heart with an arrow first ignited my passion for literature and still lingers in my imagination today, many years later. I would like to thank Dr. Glenn for his influence in my life as my teacher and mentor and for visiting Oak today Yet, I fall short with trying to express this gratitude. So I will end with one of Dr. Dr. Glenn's own stories of gratitude from one of his articles on Flannery O'Connor. This is a quote from Dr. Glenn. In a letter she sent on Christmas Eve of 1961, Caroline Gordon, still the younger woman's friend and mentor, sent Jacques Maritain peacock feathers from Flannery O'Connor's peacocks. To think that feathers from O'Connor's birds made their way at last to the old philosopher in France. This man, who first taught her, about afar, taught her from afar about the habit of art and the radiance of form, enters a circle of the gift too graceful for commentary. Now I would like to introduce Dr. Glenn Arbery for his talk entitled, Was Eve the Original Wonder Woman?
2: situated right to start with. Thank you so much, Lisa, and thank you all. It's a great pleasure for me to be here at Oakcrest again. As as Lisa said, I was here back in October when I talked about Homer to, to some of the students. And um giving this O'Donovan Humanities lecture, it's a particularly great honor and I'm I'm just um, thrilled to be able to do it. The hospitality I've met here has just been overwhelming. Um, It's just beautiful. Um, Mary Ortiz and Cecilia Marquez, all of you on the faculty, and Mike Barbic. Where's Mike? I'm gonna gonna pick on Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Mike's helped with all the arrangements, and of course Lisa. Um, Lisa has been our student and friend since the 1980s, um, and the best thing I can say about you, Lisa, is that you have the same passion for teaching that Dr. Louise Cowan, our mentor, had, and I can't think of a greater compliment than that. Um, I think that Oak Crest and what you're doing here at Oak Crest should give everybody involved a sense of great hope about the gracious and growing faith, you know, even in the, in the circumstances that I think all of us recognize we face in our culture today. I'm going to be talking about Eve tonight, and when I consider what's led me to the story of Eve, um, I think you already have some hints. Um, Before our son was born, a priest at St. Patrick's Church up in Nashville, New Hampshire, Monsignor McDonough, used to catch me coming out of church with the six daughters I had at the time. And he would put his merry Irish hand on my shoulder and say, for the benefit of everybody close by, Glenn, blessed art thou among women. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, I think you must get that occasionally yourself, right? Um, So God rest Monsignor McDonough on this St. Patrick's Day. I have been blessed with and among women, as you've already heard. We had another daughter after that string of six was broken by our one son. Um, yesterday, as Lisa's already hinted, you know, when I had that session with the faculty here, it really did feel like kind of being back at home, you know, at our dinner table. Um, the proportions were the same at any, at any rate, right? Um, but I've also been blessed to have all my life uh, have been around women of great authority and uh, grace Um, Not only women who have been like that, but who have had exceptionally long lives. Uh, My stern but very loving maternal grandmother lived to be 102. My mother, who had the same gracious southern bearing, lived to be 101. And Louise Cowan, who was our great teacher and mentor and friend, uh, died in 2015, a month before her 99th birthday. My wife, Virginia, and I have been married for almost 40 years, and anyone who knows her knows her great strength and substance. Not too long ago, I met a man, this is Dan Phoenix, who told me that Virginia, many years ago, had helped him when he took her to lunch because uh, he needed her advice. He confided to her that he didn't understand women, and this was suddenly a problem because he had fallen in love with one. <laughs> If he had told me he didn't understand women, I would have said, which women? Or, or more to the point, which one? How do you understand or not understand women per se? When my daughters were born, it was a shock to find out how different each one was from the others. Lucia was not John. Anybody who, kn- <laughs> anybody who knows my daughters will, uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Ruth was not Lucia. And we kept up this experiment for quite a while. But my experience of women per se, even in the limited range of my own family, has been full of, shall we say, challenging variety. Nevertheless, I'm very glad that my wife, from her superior perspective of actually being a woman, was successful in explaining women to that young man. He holds her indirectly responsible for his marriage and his children. What did she say? Unfortunately, she has no idea. (laughs) Or at least she won't tell me. My my own hard-earned perspective on the impossibility of talking about women per se makes it all the more paradoxical that tonight I want to talk about Eve, the essential feminine, the first woman who contains in herself and all her splendor and vulnerability the whole opportunity and danger of human freedom. These days, even to speak of the masculine and the feminine seems almost arcane. Depending on which source you consult, you'll find that there are upwards of 70 varieties of gender identification, and everyone concerned seems sworn to the most humorless solemnity about it. Why is that? It seems to be because one's biological assignment to a gendered body is felt somehow to be arbitrary, even an infringement on one's freedom to choose what one wants to be. So to home in on the feminine seems like a particularly benighted enterprise, essentialist, an attempt to reduce an array of disparate possibilities to a single restrictive concept. But in this case, great literature, not abstraction, leads us to contemplate Eve. I hope that in imagining her, we can find a way to a different and deeper understanding of freedom by entering what John Crow Ransom calls the rich contingency of the poetic image. Back in the 1950s, some of you remember this movie, The Three Faces of Eve, anybody ever see that? I have have two people, okay, good three, we're up to four, can we, (laughs) (laughs) like an auctioneer, Um, um, but, you know, this was a movie in which the title character had several characteristic modes that emerged from her multiple personality disorder, there was a, the, the one who was characterized by this meek, cowed submission to her husband, There was this bold and irresponsible one who was promiscuous. And then there was another one, a third one uh, of great ladylike dignity. Well, at least in the 1950s, Eve was still a central cultural figure. A movie title like All About Eve, remember this one? Betty Davis and Ann Baxter still meant something, even if the meaning was largely negative. Recently of her is likely to be elegiac, as in Stephen Greenblatt's recent book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. Or, it's likely to be ironic, as in Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Harari has a chapter called, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve, in which he never mentions Eve by name, but he does explain what the tree was all about. Going to enjoy this. In the savannas and forests that sapiens inhabited, high calorie sweets were extremely rare and food in general in short supply. A typical forager 30,000 years ago had access to only one type of sweet food ripe fruit. If a Stone Age woman, this would be Eve, right? came across a tree groaning with figs. The most sensible thing to do was to eat as many of them as she could on the spot before the local baboon band picked the tree bare. <laughs> the instinct to gorge on high calorie food was hardwired into our genes. So there you have it, the forbidden fruit. Once good, now bad for your diet, right? It's the it's sin against fitness. Which, which now seems to be the requirement for the model woman, who is primarily these days a warrior. You think of Daisy Ridley as Ray, right, in the Star Wars movies. Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. And Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Like the Amazons of the ancient world, Penthesilea or Hippolyta or Camilla, these are athletic martial artists who don't need men to defend them. They're brave, beautiful, headstrong, fiercely loyal to their friends, and burdened with responsibilities that require great sacrifice. In many ways, they reflect the same superlatives that C.S. Lewis imagines in Perilandra, which I'll be talking about later. But none of them exists in the way that Eve exists. In one of my classes on Paradise Lost earlier this spring, a student sardonically but accurately describe Milton's Eve in terms of her for Adam ness. Got that? In other words, the orientation of her whole existence toward her husband, toward Adam. These contemporary heroines lack this forness almost entirely. But what distinguishes the poetically imagined Eve, both in John Milton's superb and tragic depiction of her in Paradise Lost, or in C.S. Lewis's version in the Paralandra Trilogy, is that she finds her deepest meaning in exactly this foreignness, her feminine relation to the masculine nature. And it doesn't in any way undercut her cosmic importance. So let me turn them to Eve. What I find fascinating in the depiction in Milton and Lewis of the first woman is not that she exposes some weakness that leads to all our woe, but that she embodies original beauty and grace. In Milton, she's the crown of creation, actually called for. Do you all remember? Have have you all read Paradise Lost? I think if you have, it's probably been a while uh, for most of us, right? But Adam, and even even in the Genesis account, right, Adam calls for the creation of Eve. She's the crown of creation. She's the one in whom Adam recognizes the fulfillment of everything else that exists. Her original excellence, I want to say, requires the kind of imagination that first conceived of the presence and power of the Greek goddesses. For example, I think of Achilles at the beginning of the Iliad. Agamemnon has just infuriated him. He's pulling out his sword to attack attack Agamemnon, when suddenly Athena descends, takes him by the hair, turns him around, and there's Achilles staring into the terrible eyes shining. as as the poem has it. To imagine Eve, we need to picture the wisdom of Athena, but also the queenly majesty of Hera, the effortless allure of Aphrodite, and the wild virginal beauty of Artemis. Hers is a feminine power and loveliness that serenely exists in itself, but also thrives and becomes most what it is with respect to God and her complement in the masculine. Imagination itself has to be amplified and clarified and deepened, even to be able to approach the unfallen Eve. And without imagining her, how can we begin to say we can understand who she is? Why not Mary instead of Eve? Indeed, I'll end with Mary. But to appreciate the new Eve rightly, we need to reimagine Eve when she was new herself, first through John Melton's Paradise Lost. The contemporary literary historian Stephen Greenblatt, whom I mentioned earlier, Stephen Greenblatt is almost equally readable and irritating. <laughs> anyway, uh, Greenblatt traces depictions of Eve over several millennia and finds her supreme realization in this poem, which lives because of Milton's depiction of Adam and Eve. As Greenblatt puts it, they possess an insistent, undeniable, literal human presence. First published in 1667, Paradise Lost expands chapters two and three of Genesis into a classical epic. Milton begins the poem, so he takes these two chapters, right, where the account of Adam and Eve is, is fairly minimal and sort of skeletal and expands it over the course of, you know, 12 books of majestic iambic pentameter into this, into this classical epic. He begins the poem, if you remember, by uh, showing Satan waking in hell. He's, he and the other rebel angels are, have just been defeated by the forces of heaven driven out of heaven and they've been lying for nine days in this burning lake in hell. When Satan wakes and arouses the others and they have this council where the whole question is going to be how they continue the war against God since they've been so thoroughly defeated. Um, There are two ways they could approach it. One is by force which Moloch, one of the one of the demons in hell recommends because maybe it'll get them annihilated. Huh? That'd be good. Uh, it'd be better to be annihilated altogether rather than to can suffer as they do in hell. Um, but the, the argument that prevails is that they move against the new world, which God has just created in order to replace the fallen angels who, who have, have, have rebelled against God. It will be uncommon revenge on the part of these devils if they can take God's new darlings who are are freshly created and spoil this fresh paradise that God has made in Eden. In book three of the poem, God watches Satan approaching earth. You would have to kind of get the whole cosmology here. But he already anticipates that Satan is going to Tempt Adam and Eve that they will fall. <laughs> there's this one moment when he's thinking through what's going to happen. And he says, "Ingrate!" I mean, he hasn't even Satan hasn't even gotten there in, anyway. Um, so he counters the inevitable fall that he sees coming, with the promise of the incarnation. So all of this is already kind of worked out before Satan ever arrives. So why doesn't God simply prevent? you know, Satan from tempting Adam and Eve to start with. Here's the whole issue. He says, not free, what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance, constant faith, or love, where only what they needs must do appeared, not what they would? What praise could they receive? Without freedom, where is the, where is the um, merit of obedience? Where is the Where is the pleasure that God himself would take, right? If if they're not free to do what they would. They won't be truly free, and this is clear also, unless they have the capacity and the opportunity to disobey God, right? Which is why setting the whole test of, of the tree of knowledge and good and evil is done. And therefore, as we watch the poem unfold, God allows Satan to reach the terrestrial paradise and to begin his temptation, which begins with Eve. And book four of the poem, the evil one, then comes upon this new paradise that, that God has just made. These new creatures that are moving about in this garden um, of delights. Satan bringing all of hell with him in himself, disguises himself as a cormorant and prays. I mean, he just sort of spies on what's going on inside inside the walls of paradise. And it's here that he gets his first glimpse of Adam and Eve. So here's Milton. What Satan sees, two of far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty, seemed lords of all and worthy seemed, for in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shone, truth, wisdom, sanctitude, severe and pure, severe but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men, though both not equal as their sex not equal seemed, for contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace, He for God only, she for God in him. Anybody bristling out there? (laughs) This is undoubtedly the most famous poetic account of Adam and Eve, and it's easy to misread it because it seems to be Milton's own commentary, and I think in part it is. But in fact, the coloration of it, the commentary on their inequality is certainly Satan's. It might seem difficult to believe when you're looking at this passage to think that Satan could be seeing Adam and Eve and seeing in them the image of their glorious maker. But in fact, this is one of the things that torments Satan the most, that he can see the good. He can see the what, what's beautiful in this situation. He can admire it, and yet, The very fact that he can't have it, that he's been turned away from it by his own deed, torments him all the more. So the major mistake that Satan makes in this first recognition of Adam and Eve is the most famous line, the one that probably is most often held up against Milton. He for God only, she for God in him. What does that mean? Both man and woman, woman are described in terms of their foreignness, right? She is, he's for God, she is for God in him. So, to be for God only means that Adam encounters God directly. Eve somehow needs the representation of God through Adam in order to be able to participate in God's majesty. Satan sees that Adam's fair, large front and eye sublime, that is his forehead and his eye, declared absolute rule. But it's their hair, interestingly, that gets Satan's attention. Don't ask me why. All right, Adam's, those of you who know the uh, Homeric poems, remember that in the Odyssey, Odysseus is always being washed ashore somewhere. And Athena comes to him and and gives him a kind of makeover. You know, he's he's all crusted with salt. This this is a scene that we'll kind of see echoed in C.S. Lewis. And and she'll she'll kind of do her magic and, and Homer always describes his hyacinthine locks, you know, that that descend after after she does her magic. So here's Adam. Hyacinthine locks round from his parted forelock, manly hung, clustering not beneath his shoulders broad, okay, you know. She, as a veil down to the slender waist, her unadorned golden tresses wore, disheveled but in wanton ringlets, waved as the vine curls her tendrils, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway, and by her yielded, by him best received, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. So let me dwell a little on Eve. Satan reads her hair as the key to her whole character. Her disheveled golden tresses are more beautiful than Adam's locks, but everything about them implies an abundance so great as to be unruly, like the garden itself that Adam and Eve must tend daily. Hers is a bounty that needs direction, a subjection that she yields, but yields as slowly as a vine being trained to accept guidance and support. What Satan can't anticipate from this first overview is the extent of Adam's evenness. I know these phrases are awkward, but you see what I'm getting at. Eve's for Adamness, this sort of way that she looks to him in every way, is at least equally matched by Adam's for Eveness. In other words, he can't imagine himself without her. And as we see later, that's going to be pretty much the, the tragic center of his own downfall. He has a love for her so strong that he has trouble confessing it to the angel Raphael. Raphael has been sent down by God to warn Adam and Eve about the war in heaven that's taken place, about the rebellion of Satan, and the fact that Satan himself is now prowling about trying to tempt them. Um, Adam is, is talking to Raphael after all this has been explained, and it's kind of like, you know, just guys, right? I mean, they're they're talking about this this Eve. And Adam, you could almost say, is saying that he doesn't understand understand women. Um, So he tells Raphael that his supposed superiority evaporates when he sees Eve. He wonders whether God, quote, took perhaps more than enough (laughs) from his side in creating her, at least bestowed on her too much of ornament in outward show elaborate, of inward less exact. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> quoting Milt. He says he understands that she is, quote, the inferior in the mind and inward faculties which most excel. Stop. Lewis will revise this inferiority, by the way, but that it doesn't matter at all in her presence. He tries to explain himself to this increasingly alarmed angel. He says, when I approach her loveliness, so absolute she seems, and in herself complete, so well to know her own, that what she wills to do or say seems wisest, discreetest, best. All higher knowledge in her presence fails. Excuse me. All higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded. Wisdom in discourse with her loses discountenanced, and like folly shows. Authority and reason on her weight as one intended first, not after made occasionally, and to to consummate all greatness of mind and nobleness their seat, build in her loveliest, and create an awe about her as a guard angelic placed. So Milton has made Eve the inferior of Adam in rational authority, but she has such beauty that authority and reason on her weight. That is, they take the role of servants in her presence. Every moral and intellectual virtue assumes its loveliest form in her. She moves Adam with, quote, vehement desire, as he tells Raphael. He feels the difference between the rational contemplation that leads to God and the aesthetic delight that moves him to love of Eve. He explains that he enjoys everything else in the garden, but with Eve, and I'm quoting, of course here passion first I felt, commotion strange, and all enjoyments else, superior and unmoved, here only weak against the charm of beauty's powerful glance. Like her husband, unfortunately, Eve also prefers her own beauty. To Adam's rational superiority. <laughs> but she feels herself the inferior in the inward faculties and it troubles her. Milton makes Eve in this fashion pretty clearly because her temptation by the serpent and her fall are scripted in Genesis. Unlike C.S. Lewis, whom we'll consider in a few minutes, he needs to show her as innocent and yet at the same time predispose her to the fall that that his readers already know is inevitable. The question is whether there's simply a design flaw in Eve from the outset. In other words, whether she and herself was created sufficient to stand but free to fall, as God says of man, or whether she's only sufficient to stand in the company of Adam. So this is the question. Eve has extraordinary beauty, and great dignity, sanctitude, severe and pure, and her intelligence is by no means deficient, as Milton emphasizes repeatedly. There's nothing wrong with her mind, it's just, I mean, Adam's kind of a physicist or something. Um, And yet, left to herself and the cunning of Satan, she very quickly falls. When Satan finds her alone in the garden in Book Nine of Paradise Lost, he's compared to a man leaving a noisy, crowded, smoky city to go out into the countryside where every sound he hears and every fresh sight he sees are made more beautiful by the country maiden that he encounters walking along the road. Now this is Milton's brilliant perspective. The escapee from hell is the witness of paradisal beauty. In her naked majesty, Eve is tending the drooping heads of the flowers when Satan comes upon her, which she, quoting, upstays gently with myrtle band, mindless the while, herself though fairest, unsupported flower from her best prop so far and storm so nigh. Her whole nature needs the prop of Adam. But for a moment at least, her power over Satan is superb. I think this may be my favorite passage in Paradise Lost. Her heavenly form, angelic but more soft and feminine. Her graceful innocence, her every air of gesture or least action overawed his malice and with rapine sweet bereaved his fierceness of the fierce intent it brought. That space the evil one abstracted stood from his own evil, and for the time remained stupidly good, of enmity disarmed, of guile, of hate, of envy, of revenge. So Satan himself, seeing Eve, forgets to be Satan, but only momentarily. The hot hell that always in him burns soon ends his delight. This pleasure, not for him ordained, tortures him and moves him to undertake the seduction that soon follows. So how does he succeed so quickly? When he first saw Eve, Satan saw her difficulty with being for Adam and secondary in creation. A difficulty that underlies her insistence now in book nine on being alone. She says, I want to go out and, you know, it'll it'll be more efficient if both of us work pinning up things in the garden and keeping track of things uh, than if we try to do it all together. She tells Adam, who's very worried about this, he knows that Satan is prowling around. Uh, She tells Adam that they aren't free if they have to live in perpetual fear. So... If he won't let her go out alone, he must not trust her, right? He must not think that she's capable of dealing with the temptation herself. So Adam says, you know, he makes all these arguments, and then he says something like, Go, for thy stay not free absents thee more. In other words, if you're not doing this freely, then, you know, you might as well be gone because you've already left me in your own heart. So then incarnated as the serpent, and this is a point, you know, that Satan himself makes. It, it, it's like a, it's disgusting to him to enter into a, a physical form. You know, he's entering into the serpent. But it's a, it's a kind of negative um, foreshadowing of, of the incarnation, you know. It's for Satan to be incarnated in the snake. Um, he, he approaches Eve. And he finds a way to coax out her vanity and her sense of inequality to seduce her. He pretends that the way he can speak is that he alone of the animals was able to reach this fruit. He saw the other animals standing around trying to get to it, but they couldn't reach it. Apparently no giraffes were in it. Were in it. <laughs> so he, as the serpent, was able to climb the tree, get the fruit, and wow, what an effect. I was a dumb brute before, but now I can speak. Oh, reason? You know, this is great. You know, you should try it. So she, she says, well, wh- what tree was it? And so he leads her along. Um, you know, the, the serpents in those days weren't crawling on their bellies so much. Um, he leads her over to the tree where she says, well, I can't eat of this tree. <laughs> and he says, why not you know and so i mean seriously it's a it's kind of a rhetorical argument he draws himself up like an orator in Greece or Rome and, and you know and makes makes this wonderfully sophistic argument about it he turns her imagination against her he makes her see another better eve on the <laughs> other side of her disobedience if she'll just eat this fruit Look what happened to him, right? By analogy, what would she be if she ate the apple, right? She would be translated upward into a god. Um, So he makes her feel that the only real expression of freedom that she has is transgression. This is the trick, you know, to make it feel like you can only express your freedom if you turn against the good that someone else has proposed to you. That is, to reject the givenness of what she is and what she has and to choose for herself what she will be. Convinced, she plucks, she eats. After Adam sins, excuse me, after Eve sins, obviously Adam tragically follows her. Certain my resolution is to die, he says, almost as soon as he sees what she's done. He instantly prefers Eve to God. Not even a, it's not even a contest. Because Eve embodies beatitude for him. She was made for him. It's almost as though the good which God is is for every creature, whereas Eve is just for him. So he instantly chooses her. Now, his for Eve-ness in this regard clearly exceeds her for-adamness, if you see what I mean. If she were really for Adam, would she have done what she did? She was acting for Eve, and so is Adam, right? He's acting for Eve and what he does in eating the apple after her. But that very fact tells us how superb she is, how much she points toward an Eve without sin, one who experiences her freedom not as self-choice but as the opportunity to give herself without reserve. My wife asked me recently why I thought that C.S. Lewis had sort of rewritten Eve in Paralandra. And I think it's because he wants to enable us to reimagine this essential feminine differently as the source of all that's most full of grace. Eve has been the center of misogyny in the West. Any of you know Chaucer's Wife of Bath? The wife of Bath in her prologue to her tale in the Canterbury Tales, you know, goes through all the husbands that she's had. She's had five, like the woman at the well. And you know, the last one would used to read to her out of all the books telling what was wrong with women until she finally hit him in the head with the book. <laughs> but in any case, um, C.S. Lewis, I think, wants to help remedy this misogyny, among other things. He was a great reader of Milton. In fact, some of you may know that one of the great classics on Paradise Lost was by C.S. Lewis. It's called Preface to Paradise Lost. But it's also the case that that, um, C.S. Lewis's Paralandra trilogy centers on something like a Paradise Lost story, except it's not lost in in the central volume of, of that trilogy. He presents an Eve who lives on a world as yet free and unfallen. And it's not textually scripted to fall, which also makes it a major difference from, from Milton's work. In the Paralandra trilogy, which falls into a genre that you might call spiritual science fiction. It's not fantasy, it's not real science fiction, since you know that you know who Isaac Asimov or somebody is. Um, but it's really a a spiritual story that's kind of set in science fiction context. And in the first volume of it, um, there are three volumes, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and the last one, That Hideous Strength. First one set on Mars, second one on Venus, and the third one back on Earth. In the first one, Out of the Silent Planet, the protagonist, Dr. Elwin Ransom, is kidnapped from his home in England by these two you know, scientifically brilliant guys uh, who get him to Mars and and think they're going to sacrifice him to the locals <laughs> until it turns out the locals are not the kind of locals that they thought. Um, and in fact, what Ransom discovers is, is that there's this spiritual war that's going on in the mid-20th century between two great forces. One is the represented by Weston, this scientist who kidnaps ransom. And I guess you could characterize it as scientific, technological, demonic, something like that. Um, whereas ransom and, and you know associated with Nazism, with communism, you know, everything that kind of denies the spiritual nature of the human person and wants to substitute a purely materialistic understanding. Opposed to that is this poetic, mythological, spiritual force that's represented by Ransom in harmony with God and with the angels who are called El Dila in in this trilogy. Ransom successfully averts the disaster on Mars and returns to Earth, which is called the Silent Planet, because the angel in charge of our planet is is the fallen angel and, and our planet you know, is is the one that's silent among the harmonies of all the others. Um, but it's also the one where God himself took human form, and this becomes central to the whole way the rest of the trilogy works. In the second volume of the trilogy, Ransom is sent to Venus by these angels, these Eldila, in a coffin-like pod. Lewis doesn't spend much time describing the science <laughs> of it. You know, he's kind of... You know, a pod thing. (laughs) Um, And when he gets to Venus, he discovers that his task is to prevent the fall from being repeated there. His eve on Venus is named Tenedril. But for most of the novel, before he knows her name, she's simply called the Green Lady. This figure of athletic youth. Extraordinary beauty and complete absence of self-conscious shame. She's always in communion with Maleldil, who is the son of God. It's the, the kind of name of Christ that, that's presented in the novel. Much of the action of this second novel is Ransom's attempt, attempt to prevent Satan himself, who has incarnated himself in the body of Weston, the same guy we met in the previous novel, right? Uh, to prevent Weston from tempting the Green Lady into a transgression that would correspond to Eve's. That's what his whole intent is, as he gradually discovers when he's on Venus. I must have read the Perilandra trilogy 40 years ago. I think it was in the 70s sometime. And I remember it with undistorted vividness, certain images of Ransom's arrival on Venus. This cloud-covered, oceanic, planet. He falls through the atmosphere this pod thing, whatever it is right, dissolves as soon as it gets to the, the surface of the ocean and he finds himself completely naked in this warm ocean of Venus so after swimming for an indefinite time he eventually climbs onto one of the strange floating islands of the planet and falls asleep in exhaustion. This is a kind of Odysseus parallel. Uh, When he wakes, he begins to explore this wooded island, which shapes itself to the waves as they pass under it, if you can imagine that. Um, So what are hills suddenly become valleys, right? As the wave passes under it, and this poses quite a problem for learning how to walk on, on on a place like this. So the sensations that Lewis creates in imagining these landscapes and things on Venus are startling, they're superb. The fruit that Ransom tastes, for example, changes his whole understanding of pleasure. It was so different, this is quoting, from every other taste that it seemed mere pedantry to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a totally new genus of pleasures something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant. For one draft of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. And yet, he also finds that when he's about to repeat the experience, you would think that if you had something that good, that your impulse would be, you know, let me try that again. But something within him opposes that impulse. Quote, it's difficult to suppose that this opposition came from desire, for what desire would turn from so much deliciousness? But for whatever cause, it appeared to him better not to taste again. Perhaps the experience had been so complete that repetition would be a vulgarity. End quote. So add to this Lewis's depiction of the iridescent bubbles that continually expand from the trees. <laughs> these things sort of drip down from the branches and expand into these big bubbles, you know, it's sort of like blowing, you know, blowing bubbles. But he, he's going through this grove where he sees this kind of glimmering, and I've often wished for this exact experience, and you'll see what I mean in just a second. Moved by natural impulse, he put his hand out to touch one. Immediately his head, face, and shoulders were drenched with what seemed in that warm world an ice-cold shower bath, and his nostrils filled with a sharp, shrill, exquisite scent. Such was the refreshment that he seemed to have been till now, but half awake. Don't you wish you had one right. <laughs> but when he opened his eyes, which had closed involuntarily at the shock of moisture, all the colors about him seemed richer, and the dimness of that world seemed clarified a reenchantment fell upon him. So, if descriptions like these didn't precede his first encounter with the Green Lady, I think th- that encounter might have had something of the sense of escape, you know, from hell or something that, that you find in, in Paradise Lost, which can't help but color the way that you see Eve and Milton. But here instead we have this Cleansing, this enhancement of perception, this re-enchantment that heightens pleasure. You, you have to imagine a, a pleasure more intense than anything you've experienced, yet also this moderation of desire, right? Both of them somehow happening at the same time. So the new Eve that, that Lewis, I mean, that Ransom sees and that Lewis imagines first appears as this distant figure. You have all these islands out on this in this ocean sort of moving like this and he sees a figure running down the hillside of one of them toward the, toward the edge of the island as his own island lifts up and he's able to get a perspective across the water She's, this figure is going at full speed down the hill and at first he takes it for a man um, but then when he gets close he recognizes that it's a woman and he's completely taken aback Quote, he had been expecting wonders, had been prepared for wonders, but not prepared for a goddess, carved apparently out of green stone, yet alive. And Ransom's first exchanges with this green lady play at the edges of comedy. First thing she does when she sees him is start laughing, because when Ransom was on the way to Venus in his pod, right? Part of it was turned toward the sun and the other part away from the sun so that half of him was completely sunburned <laughs> and the other half <laughs> was what Huck Finn calls fish-belly white. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so um, she looks at him and calls him piebald, You know this, this kind of two-colored thing. Um, and she realizes after a while that um, earthlings don't like to be laughed at, so she stops. But in any case, her whole demeanor and her appearance require constant readjustments from Ransom. First of all, there's the unearthly quality of her face. The face of this green lady is is just sort of phenomenally still. He finds himself wondering when he looks at her whether she's in fact some kind of alien species, whether on this planet there's a creature less than rational that's assumed the human form, right? Suppose this is what, you know, uh, dogs that look like on, on Venus. You know, suppose this is the form they have with the kind of mind. But then he realizes what it is that's missing and begins to understand her. Quote, he decided afterwards that the unearthly quality was due to the complete absence of that element of resignation which mixes in however slight a degree with all profound stillness in terrestrial faces. Resignation to what, you wanna ask, right? Well, obviously, it's resignation to death and to everything that accompanies death, every sorrow that it brings, every shadow that it casts over the life that you're living before your death. The absence of resignation in her goes along with Ransom's new defamiliarized experience of language in her presence. His first words to her are, I come in peace. Pretty, pretty standard, <laughs> inter- interplanetary stuff, right? But her answer is, what is peace? So what does this mean? I mean, to, to understand what peace is, she would need to be able to put herself at least imaginatively outside it, outside peace. She would need the contrasting idea of conflict which she doesn't have. This is brilliant on Lewis's part. The green lady has no experience other than peace, as a fish has no experience other than water. She so much lives and moves and has her being within peace that she can't separate herself from it and conceptualize it. She has the same experience of being in God, carried by God, as she puts it. She's so beautiful. The Ransom can hardly look at her. But it's not her physical beauty that so dominates the description it, as it is the sense of this fresh mind, poetic and lovely. The things that he says make her older. She says, you've made me older. He doesn't know what she means, but it's as though her youth, the youthfulness of her perceptions is constantly being made, changed a little by what he says. As the green lady hears Ransom speak to her about herself, she comments how strange it is, quoting, stepping out of life into the alongside and looking at oneself living as if one were not alive. This is an extraordinary description of language, what you're doing when you're conceptualizing things in language and we don't have time to unpack it. Ransom also makes her see the difference between what she expects or hopes for and what she actually has. For example, when, when she was running down that hillside, first time he saw her, right, she was running down toward the edge of the island because she thought that she was going to see the king, her counterpart, you know, who's later named as Tor. But, you know, this is, this is the king who is the Adam to her Eve. And Ransom points out she expected to see him, and that she was disappointed when she didn't see him. So, this is this is a new, new concept to her. Again, think about this. Think about Lewis imagining this, right, as as the kind of condition for her, um, getting older. She admits the expectation and the disappointment. Yes, I expected to see him. I saw you. I was disappointed. But I quickly adjusted right to, to what, who you were and what's actually in front of me. But she sees that something other or better can be imagined. Think about Eve, right? She sees that something other or better than what what's in front of her can be imagined. And... You know, it might be preferable to what's immediately present. So here we're back to Satan's temptation of Eve and also back to this crucial matter of freedom. In Genesis and Paradise Lost, the serpent tempts Eve to try to be something else that she cannot yet grasp. This new Eve, right? This this better Eve that she's going to get by eating the apple. The serpent makes her think she'll become this thing on the other side of what's forbidden. If if she'll only break through, she'll only transgress, then she'll be able to reach that better self that's being denied her now. A new kind of being is held out to Eve as a tantalizing promise. You shall be as gods. And she seeks to realize this new self through disobedience by rejecting the present good that she has. You see what I mean? She rejects the present good of Eden, of Adam, of all that she has in order to choose this better self that she thinks she can reach, the one that will be, won't be inferior, the one that will be equal to Adam or even better than Adam. You know, she can reach that if only she takes the fruit. For the Green Lady, by contrast, the very possibility of an imaginary good in contrast to the one already present, has a very different effect. It leads to this magnificent recognition of her own freedom. This, O piebald, (laughs) is the glory and wonder you have made me see, that it is I, I myself, who turned from the good expected, that is, you know, the husband she expected to see, to the given good, which is Ransom himself. Out of my own heart I do it. One can conceive a heart which did not, which clung to the good it had first thought of and turned the good which was given it into no good. So Ransom says a little sourly that he doesn't see what's so glorious about it. But then she answers, I thought that I was carried in the will of him I love, but now I see that I walk with it. It is delight with terror in it, one's own self to be walking from one good to another, walking beside him. She realizes, in other words, that she's free, which means that she's free to choose the good and to walk toward it herself. Now, again, you know, you hear, you hear Ransom, I, I don't know if it was, but she's making a recognition here that what was just like the, The air she breathed, right, is is in fact a freedom to do something of her own, you know, in choosing the good instead of just having no choice. So this is freedom as the ability to do what one ought, the freedom to affirm the given good, not to assert the priority of self over all else and not to transgress. If she freely chooses the will of him she loves, She walks with him of her own accord, and she has to be free in order to do so. I hope you see what I mean here. If she's not free to do the will of him she loves out of her own desire to do it, then there's there's, there's no merit in that. Again, as God says of Adam and Eve, not free, what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance? So the freedom that the green lady celebrates is the crucial recognition. It seems to me that Milton's Eve never has and that many of our contemporaries cannot imagine. What's so compelling about Lewis's Eve is the coexistence of all her qualities, beauty, humor, lightness, speed of mind and body. She's even a rock climber. She's <laughs> They're going up on the fixed land. They're climbing these cliffs, and she just scampers up it before Ransom can even begin. And it reminds me of our um, women students at Wyoming Catholic College, I have to say. Um, You know, the the rock climbers among them are pretty startling. Um, She exists this eve in constant prayerful attention to what God tells her. And above all, she exhibits the majesty of the essential feminine on his second or third day with her Ransom comes upon her just after after he wakes and she's not aware of him yet and he finds her surrounded by animals it was the first time I'm quoting the first time he had looked steadily at her himself unobserved and she seemed more strange to him than before there was no category in the terrestrial mind which would fit her opposites met in her and were fused in a fashion for which we have no images. One way of putting it would be to say that neither our sacred nor our profane art could make her portrait. Beautiful, naked, shameless, young. She was obviously a goddess. But then the face, the face so calm that it escaped insipidity by the very concentration of its mildness. The face that was like the sudden coldness and stillness of a church when we enter it from a hot street that made her a Madonna. The alert inner silence which looked out from those eyes overawed him. Yet at any moment she might laugh like a child or run like Artemis or dance like a Maynard. The other splendors of this new eve who opens Ransom's mind far more than he opens hers, are too numerous to name. And they come into perfect focus only at the end of the novel, when Tenedril is reunited with Tor, the king, feminine with masculine, and we see how in their complementarity they exist for each other, but also in ways that are independent and splendid in themselves. This green lady seems to me... Lewis's attempt not only to revise Milton and reimagine Eve, but also to prepare his readers for an adequate understanding of Mary, the genuine new Eve who most embodies the essential feminine in its foreness toward the masculine of God. Midway through George Bernard's novel, a Diary of a Country Priest, The old priest advises the younger one to keep his devotion to Mary, quoting, For she was born without sin, in what amazing isolation, a pool so clear, so pure, that even her own image, created only for the sacred joy of the Father, was not to be reflected. The eyes of Our Lady are the only real child eyes that have ever been raised to our shame and sorrow. They are eyes of gentle pity, wondering sadness, and with something more in them, never yet known or expressed, something which makes her younger than sin, younger than the race from which she sprang, and though a mother by grace, mother of all grace, our little youngest sister, so Bernard does. So imagining Eve fallen and unfallen gives us at least a hint of what expression, what that expression in the eyes of Our Lady might be. Certainly it is not resignation because she is younger than sin, a description we would need to ponder. It's something like the alert inner silence which looks out from the eyes of Lewis's green lady. And certainly her expression must tell us something about the perfect freedom out of which Our Lady said, Fiat mihi, and gave herself to the purposes of God. Be it done to me according to thy word. May this youngest sister of ours be the model of the young women at Oakcrest. And may she be the guide of all those who help this school do its great work in the world.